Welcome to Football and Society, a podcast exploring societal issues through the lens of the beautiful game. In this series, we're covering topics such as football fan activism and painkiller misuse by professional footballers. This week, we're looking at the political and economic issues concerning a controversial chant used by Mexican football fans. During the 2018 World Cup in Russia, the Mexican Soccer Federation was fined $10,000 after fans of the national team used the term puto to address opposition players in the opening game. The term is widely considered to have homophobic connotations, but a recent study argues that puto has layered meanings which are evident in its employment by Mexican football fans. Marie Sarita Gaitan and Matthew Basso argue that a more nuanced analysis is required when discussing this controversial chant. While they argue that the macho remains a recognisable trope of Mexican manhood, representing virility and domination over women and homosexuals, the hegemonic image and stereotypical associations do not necessarily align with men's sense of identity, especially Mexican working class men who are negotiating their sense of masculinity via a range of life experiences. Mexico suffered a major economic downturn in 1994, the year the North American Free Trade Agreement was implemented, a neoliberal transformation that inflicts a great hardship on workers from industrial and working class backgrounds. The authors argue that this economic backdrop greatly enhances our understanding of how puto is used in specific contexts. The working class fans who created the A Puto chant in 2003 embodied a masculinity described as de madre, directing the chant at the beneficiaries of the neoliberal economic order. On the other hand, neo-macho members of Mexico's technocratic elite a product of the country's economic shift in the recent decades, used the chant to affirm their national superiority and allegiance with elite global counterparts. We're delighted to have Saita and Matthew join us to discuss their research today. Guys, thank you so much and welcome to Football Society. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, firstly, can I just ask um, to kick things off, if you could just tell us um, what in originally inspired your research um, and also if you could just explain why the term puto is so controversial. Sure. So there were several things kind of that motivated this, this project. Um, I think for me, it was this very binary treatment of, of the argument that was circulating in the global press. This um, was it or wasn't it, in the very beginning at least, um, a homophobic chant, number one. And then it's sort of morphed into the homophobic chant um, that Mexican fans were deploying. Um, and that was, you know, being very harmful to, you know, and, and damaging to um, the queer community. And I thought, you know, well, I've lived in Mexico for several years. Um, and I remember that when these, when this kind of argument first um, emerged a long, long time ago, that folks were very insistent that this was not, you know, exactly what was happening. And it just felt like there was, you know, I just felt really uncomfortable with this, with this kind of now global framing, right? And as somebody who studies Latin America, but also someone who's very concerned about Latinx lives in the context of the United States, um, when you kind of frame Latin Americans, but also then Latinx populations in the United States as, as homophobic, as only understood through this lens um, in the context of soccer, which is now very um, growing in popularity in the United States. So here I'm thinking about it from the US perspective, it's like, well, that's kind of circulating this 
you know, stereotype around Mexico and Mexican men in particular as, you know, overly misogynistic, overly homophobic. And, you know, given US-Mexico relations, the idea of the bad hombre, um, you know, we have this hyper-criminalization of the US-Mexico border. It was just very frustrating. And then Matt and I had the opportunity um, with the creation of a very brand new college at the University of Utah, the School for Cultural and Social Transformation, to teach a class on men of color masculinities. And it was during our um, time co-teaching that we had a section on sports. And I think we were teaching something by Ty Tengen, yeah. Matt. Yeah. And I don't know how the conversation came up and we started like just kind of rapping in class. I think our students were like, oh my gosh, these, these folks are bonkers. And we just started talking about this controversy and, and, and like the transnational flows about meaning and how th these meanings kind of circulate. And I think it was the Tengen piece on, I'm not remembering exactly. And then I'm like, you know what, we should write something about this. And we opened up a Google doc and just started writing. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, it was really that class and the opportunity to work together with Sarita and with those students, right, who were asking probing, challenging questions to us about the complexities of identity. And for me and, and Sarita as well, I'm a historian by training and American studies scholar. And most of my work is around um, histories of masculinity and racialized masculinity. And I'm deeply interested in context, right? Instead of kind of just these models of masculinity that seem pretty simplistic to us, we wanna know what about the peculiarities and particularities of individual communities and groups. And the Eputo chant that Sarita introduced me to, I should know and I'm a big sports fan and um, what we call soccer, a soccer fan. Um, I didn't really know that much about the chant. And I was like, what is going on here, right? This is, this is crazy. So we started talking about it and we started doing some research on it. And um, it was just a pleasure uh, to learn from and work with Sarita and to work in a different context. Um, one that I always been interested in Mexico and Latin America more generally and sports as well. Uh, so it, it, it's been intellectually uh, pretty fabulous for me, that's the genesis of the Eputo story for us. Well, it is a spectacularly interesting article full of loads of info that I'd obviously never encountered before. The, the Eputo chant, I was familiar with it because of obviously watching the World Cup. And then I think you actually reference the Guardian newspaper in the article. And I remember reading that article and thinking, wow, this is essentializing an entire nation. And, and it's a, a place yeah. that I visited Mexico and the way that the article was framed in a supposedly liberal centre-left, arguably, a newspaper was very surprising to me because I thought, hold on, this is a little bit judgmental. Um, so I think, yeah, your work is really put into sort of stark realisation just actually how, how essentialist the article was. So um, congratulations on it because it's just a, yeah, it's a fantastic reading. We'll obviously post a link to it in the episode notes. Um, going on to the first question, um, the two masculine subjectivities you identify in the article, namely desmadre masculinity and uh, neo-macho masculinity, could you give us a little summary of those, please? And are they in opposition to one another, or is it more complex than that? And 
would you say, I guess bearing in mind what I've just been saying about this kind of essentialising of the entirety of Mexico, um, are, are they unique to Mexico? So how we conceptualized Desmadre was really building initially on the work of Roger Magazine, whose book, uh, I think it's, gosh, is it blue and gold in my heart? This wonderful ethnography where he basically hangs out with a group of um, fans, of Puma fans in Mexico City. And he um, conceptualizes this idea of desmadre identity. So desmadre is this word um, that uh, means literally in Spanish, motherlessness. Um, but the idea of desmadre, of this kind of like chaotic, uniquely working class sensibility, um, it's like communicates both like frustration, um, disorder, but also humor, uh, the, the defiance of and mockery of like middle-class mores um, is something that has like a long history in Mexico. So um, for me, it was like, this seems like perfect kind of uh, word and like his use of desmadre identity to build on as a type of masculinity. So part of what we wanted to do is think about the a puto dispute, not as something as uh, like either or bad or good, but how can we look at this moment around a, a story of masculinities, right? Thinking about the work of uh, Ray Wing Connell, right? And this kind of notion of hybrid masculinities. And so desmadre masculinity was um, one of the masculinities that we found is kind of emergent, right? And so um, it emerges in conversation with, we think, um, with this idea of um, the neo-macho masculinity, but it also, so with the neo-macho uh, fans, so it's like this, you know, there, it doesn't necessarily, it's not just about the other fans, it's also about like, um, the structural order, right? So it's also about, um, it's also about, we talk about it as also being like angry at Televisa, the, the, the organization that, you know, has followed this neoliberal model who like, who controls all the airwaves and soccer football games in Mexico, right? Um, it emerges in, you know, frustration with jobs. It emerges in frustration with ticket prices and stadia. So it's emerging with all of these other kind of structural circumstances. So it's not just something that is, that needs the neo-macho masculinity. It's like all of these different kind of formations it's emerging with. Um, and I'll let Matt kind of say something, add to that. Yeah, that's, you know, Sarita's hit the crux of the issue for us is this question of multiple masculinities, right? And the Desmondre men who originated this chant did so again in a very specific context, both the historical context that we've already alluded to that's um, neoliberalism and NAFTA in particular, but also an even longer context in which they've been disempowered for generations really by a Mexican elite that had kind of authority um, and to some degree respectability, but their own version of sort of patriarchal respectability at the heart of their identity. Desmadre fights back against that, right? It's an, a, a protest identity in many ways. Um, and so when that chant is first issued, right, in this very specific context, um, it, 
it's a working, we, we argue it's a working class protest, right? It's a chant of protest against um, a lack of loyalty, right? Which is deeply important to desmadre men. Uh, it's a chant of protest against the capitalist order that's marginalized them and made everything about the bottom dollar uh, and making money um, and taken away their own sense of self and their own sense of, of power. Um, and you, you can feel that when you when you hear the chant in its kind of origin point. The second time the chant occurs that we know of is in a US-Mexico game, which is just perfect, right? Um, it's an Olympic qualifier, uh, also in Guadalajara, and it's drowned out at least through the media by, by another chant. Now that's Mexican soccer fans chanting at the US this is in 2002, Osama, Osama, Osama. Astonishing, right? I mean, just this remarkable kind of anger at the Mexican, excuse me, at the American world order. Um, but the chant that actually lives, it's the Eputo chant, right? Which they issue against the American goalkeeper. Uh, though, and this is the multiple masculinities part, right? It become, it gets taken up by these neo-macho elite men that we talk about. And how we know that is because who in the hell can afford to go to these games, right? Who can afford to travel to the World Cup? We've all seen these chants now in 2014, 2018, right? They are put forward by men typically in costume often right? Sometimes wearing sombreros, sometimes wearing Luca Libre masks. Um, and they are, they are, instead of chants of anger, um, they've inverted the chant from that outrage to one of exuberance and joy. It's a claiming of a older Mexican macho identity of authority. It's a thumbing their nose at the politically correct order that thinks that it can, it can control them. They're the bosses of Mexico. They're the ones that set the standards and it's showing to their fellow elites ever more important in the 21st century, global elites that they're in charge, right? They're the men in this country. They're the bosses of this country. It's a remarkable transition. And that's why we think it's such an incredible case study of popular culture. So digging into the concept of Desmadre a little bit, um, something that really struck me and I was quite interested in in the article is that it's an identity often identities are defined by the holding or the ownership of something and as you just kind of really eloquently talked about this is one that's very much defined by absence and you just talked a minute ago made a few references to the links between mexico and the u.s and the origins of the Eputa chant um, and obviously the the border um, that you referenced earlier and it just made me think about the notion in the US, um, particularly over the last, let's say, six, seven years of the so-called deplorables who have have owned, who have maybe in their view claimed or reclaimed what is a pejorative. I just wondered what your thoughts were on the notion of um, an identity that is defined by absence and the possible links between the communities on both sides of that Mexico-US border. So we were thinking about, I mean, I think there are some similarities between like this idea of absence, which is, you know, quite a, a fascinating one, um, you know, thinking, thinking about absence. But I think what's 
there are several kind of critical departures. And the first is how people understand themselves in Mexico as classed individuals. So in Mexico, people know very well, if you're at the bottom of the economic ladder, there's none of this like, I should be there. I deserve to be there. I am going to get there. In the US, this folks like of the deplorable, the quote unquote deplorables, there's this idea that I always deserve to be there. And now these brown, black, queers, everybody else, they are in my place. So that's like the kind of big distinction. You see what I'm saying? Um, so it's like race, class, gendered. Um, and those are like who the kind of deplorables are is that they, something has been robbed from them. And the desmadre masculinity is like, yo, we have been, we have, we are already barely hanging on. And then it gets even worse. Our government has failed us. Global capitalism has failed us. Here we are and we are still doing it. And we have, we have our voice together. We, we are here together and we can scream and we are calling you out. And so that's like what, like that's that, you see what I'm saying here? Uh, Matt, maybe you want to jump in on this. And the deplorables are like, we are angry because we have been robbed for. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, I would, I would say with the deplorables, um, it's an identity, a self-constructed identity of marginalization or what they see themselves as marginalization, but it's just not the case. Right, they're politically powerful. Many of them are middle class or even better off. It's a political identity that's been sort of created in opposition to, you know, what they see as U.S. liberals or or progressives. Um, it's one around uh, feeling like they've been victimized by political correctness and, and that sort of right? thing. Say again, please. Entitlement. It's just, it's the it's driven by an entitlement, right? Like a white entitlement. Exactly. Good. Yeah. Exactly. And and it, it crosses gender, by the way, um, which is intriguing, right? You know, here uh, whiteness um, is is the glue and the critical identity, as Sarita mentioned. If you look at the things that they're after, right? Border wall, uh, anti-immigration positions, anti-LGBTQ positions. Um, anti-trans positions, right? It's about wanting to reaffirm um, a mythic sense of, of, a of a particular American identity. Um, one that of course um, is, is fabricated, uh, but nonetheless has been enormously powerful politically, right? Um, so it's helped bomb these folks together and it's crossed borders uh, as we've seen in Canada right, um, this sense of aggrievement, of a politics of aggrievement um, is enormously powerful. You all might and, know a little bit about that too. hundred percent, I was just thinking yeah. exactly, exactly the same thing. Yes, it's playing out rather spectacularly here at the moment and it has been for many a year now. We don't have a word, I guess, for the deplorables. We don't have, in a sense, groups with such 
incredible names like the Pro Boys, which I'll never get over how that's actually taken seriously when it's one of possibly the most ridiculous names I've ever heard in my entire life. Um, but we don't have anything with that kind of that stark, I guess, almost that, that sort of violent undercurrent, right? Because and I guess ultimately it, it boils down to the fact that, you know, these people in, in the US, such as the Pro Boys, uh, Pro Boys, they're more or less, you know, they can be if they want, if they're not already militias. We, we don't have that yet. So we have this, we have this hyper masculinized sense of white entailment and, 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 um, and grievance, but at the same time, the, the kind of, the, the, the sort of visceral fear of violence isn't there just yet because we know that there aren't groups who can walk into a protest um, with an armed, uh, with, with fully armed, that we, that can't, it can't usually happen yet. So I, I don't think it's quite as stark, that feeling of, if I was in the US, Panic. I would probably feel a little, a little bit of panic because I can tell you now from across the pond, it to me, I almost keep thinking that the US is on the precipice of a civil war. And I genuinely mean that. But um, you know what? We'll, we'll not go down maybe that channel because I can feel I can feel my temperature rising as we're talking right here. Um, I wanted to sort of bring it back to the fact that this did originate as a you know a working class um chant, a working class form of rebellion, right? Um, and I'm I'm thinking of you know how it's kind of been adapted by this uh, group of fans you call the um techno gerente, which is like Basically, the, the technical business class, right? Um, and I think there's an appropriation of, of what was this identity forged on working class protest and rebellion. Um, so the brutalities in neoliberalism, class oppression, has it meant that those very working class fans have started to, to look for another means of expressing their discontent? Um, so, you know, reading the, the middle to upper class appropriation of Des Madre reminded me, to an extent, to an extent of, of wealthy white kids in the US and Europe appropriating black US political hip-hop middle-class kids in the UK adopting punk back in the late 70s, middle-class kids in the UK adopting groups like Public Enemy as well in the late 80s, for example. Um, has its power as a form of protest been diluted precisely because of its adoption by those responsible for the perpetuation of class exploitation and oppression? I mean, I would say that it um, has absolutely been diluted. Uh, that that original protest and the response to it. If you look at that history, the Mexican middle class society, uh, upper class society initially is really uh, against this chant, right? It this is my God, this is so disrespectful and exhibition of um, barras behavior, that sort of thing, uh, but. Once it gets taken up and and domesticated, um, it loses that punch, right? It loses that ability. But again, that uh, particular critique, that form of critique, has deeper roots, and it's both in things like fandom, and occurs repeatedly in in football fandom, but also in music and other forms of popular culture. I don't know of another. Um, saying another chant that has emerged as another way of kind of uh, making this opposition known. But I will note that the original moment of this chant, it was not, I noted the 2002 uh, Olympic qualifier game, but this original game um, where the chant is deployed, they also throw money at the goalkeeper. Coins. It's fascinating. Coins, right? because it's about money, right? The, what they're saying is like, you've sold us out. You were once part of us. 
but you've sold sold yourself to the highest bidder, which is exactly what's happened to Mexico and is exactly how we've continued to become ever more marginalized. It's not the throwing of monies that gets perpetuated and taken up. Instead, it's this chant with its problematic homophobic connotations, um, which again, we've created, we've revealed this deeper history, this class history to it, but it does still carry that kind of homophobic um, aspect to it, which is one of the reasons it's uh, so popular and is become this flashpoint around the globe. Um, I want to get literary for a minute. And in the article, you refer to the poet Octavio Paz, who highlighted the important role of myth-making in the construction of Mexican national identity. I just wondered, firstly, if you could give us a summary of Paz's interpretation of Mexican national culture um, and also mention why you drew on his work in the study. And we're particularly interested in the concept of Albo, which I've probably mispronounced, but if you could just kind of unpack that, I found that fascinating. Sure. So Paz, Octavio Paz, as uh, you've uh, mentioned, is, um, I mean, he's a poet, but, in, you know, Nobel Prize winner. Um, but more than that, he's just like an incredible philosopher, uh, thinker, who, by the way, part of um, Labyrinth of Solitude was his reflection of his time in the United States. So he writes about, and he's thinking about the Mexican, con Mex a Mexican national consciousness, beginning with this idea of like the Mexican in the United States. So he's thinking about, um, Mexico from as the Mexican in the United States, but also the Mexican in Mexico. And he's like, so it's 30 years post the revolution. He's writing in 1950. So he's in conversation with all these other writers, um, specifically Samuel Ramos, who at the time has also been writing and thinking about um, why is it like, you know, they're like also in conversation with Freudian psychoanalysis that's very prominent in the global like literature sphere. Um, why is it that Mexicans, like they're talking amongst themselves to each other. Why is it that we're always like, we have this like inferiority complex. This is how they're thinking, right? And, and they're like theorizing, what is it about Mexico? Why is it that, you know, we've had this revolution, but we're, but we're still always comparing ourselves to the United States. We have this inferiority complex. And um, they're thinking about the role of masculinity and in, and in context with inferiority. And for pause, it has to do with um, the colonial experience. So we're here, he's like, you know, theorizing colonialism. So national identity um, as gendered, as in conversation with colonialism, colonial violence, sex. Um, I mean, this is like radical stuff. This is, I, I, mean, I was just thinking about the Labyrinth of Solitude again in 1950. This is super like, you know, breaking boundaries in terms of putting it out there um, for Latin America, but like for Mexico in particular, this is just an amazing text. Um, and again, it reads as a series of like small essays. So for, for Paz, he, you know, he, want, he sees that all Mexicans, all of Mexico myth-making is kind of informed by the colonial 
moments, right? That the Spanish came to Mexico, um, in his words, violate indigeneity, Mexican indigeneity, that Mexico is a, a mestizo people, right? Born out of this violation. Um, and he uses the language of at chingar, right? Um, of this like kind of homeless social understanding of nationalism. Um, that chingad is this kind of hyper um, masculinized language of like, penetration. So he talks about like, all relations as having to do with somebody who is um, uh, somebody who is um, always like the winner and the loser. So that all dynamics in Mexican life are about winners and losers. And that is, so it could be a man and a woman, the chingon and the chingada, that, that it could be like a domination. So everything's about domination and this domination metaphor coming from the colonial experience. But it could also be about two men. So that the macho is always the person who's the penetrator and the chingada person the, or the person who's getting violated um, is also, well, that person of, who's getting violated, um, the penetrated um, re retains, is the person who's the, um, what, how, how I'm saying this, the chingon or the macho maintains their sexuality because as long as, as, long as they are, um, as long as they are in charge, as long as they are the dominant actor in this relationship, that they um, still maintain their, um, their, 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 their sexuality. So like all of Mexican life is dominated by gender and sexuality. And so he theorizes this and um, he like opens the door basically for all of this kind of theorizing about passivity and aggression. Um, and his version of the macho, again, is about this one, like a man's man, right? Who's always about dominance, who's always um, virile, who's overly virile, who's overly obsessed with dominating, again, dominating women and dominating homosexuals, right? Um, so that's one kind of metaphor and that all of Mexico is plays on metaphors. And this is where it kind of connects to this idea of the albur. So the albur are words and sayings that also have hidden meanings, repressed meanings, right? So again, he's theorizing in conversation with psychoanalysis. So he says that in Mexico, all kinds of words and jokes have hidden repressed meanings. And so the albur is a type of word game, right? These densely layered terms that are like impolite humor used by the working classes to, depending on the tone, depending on the location, can um, communicate different messages, right? And so if a word, um, it can mean like, uh, it can, you know, like if you're talking to, like it, even, it can even like uh, communicate certain jokes in certain contexts. So if you're like talking to an American, you could be like, oh, I think the gusta los chiles. It could be like, and you, you know, it, it could mean like you're like putting somebody down because you're talking to them about, you're not just really talking about chiles, you're talking about other phallic things. Um, and it's about the innuendo. 
And if you can do it homoerotically, the better. So it's the entendre. And the more triple wordplay, quadruple wordplay that you can like get into it, the better. Right. So there's like cachet in that wordplay. What a spectacular ensemble. I'm blown away by it. Julie, outstanding. Thank you. I wanted to go back to NAFTA, which we mentioned earlier on, the North American Free Trade Agreement, um, which, as you mentioned, is uh, very much a source of grievance for Mexican men uh, in Mexico from industrial and working class backgrounds. I wondered if you could just give us, uh, our listeners, an insight into the impacts of NAFTA on Mexico's economy and, of course, the, the workforce as well. NAFTA, you know, takes effect on January 1st, 1994, you know, proponents of NAFTA argued that it would establish, that it would create jobs, prosperity, with, you know, millions of well-paying jobs. Um, but in the years leading up to NAFTA, they had in Mexico, the privatization of banks, airlines, highways, et cetera. Um, so the years leading up to NAFTA, like let conditions ripe for literally January 1st, 1994, for everything to just kind of set the stage to fall apart. What ended up happening was that within just a few months, the Mexican central bank ran out of money. Uh, the stock market just plummeted and uh, they had, you know, economic collapse, um, extreme poverty as measured by, I don't know, the UN uh, in two years jumped almost 100% from 21% to 37%. Um, at the end of the 1990s, uh, like almost, no, one fourth of the population um, lacked access to basic food. Uh, with NAFTA, American corn, because corn subsidies were, um, lifted or rather corn subsidies were infused into the United States and corn flooded the Mexican market. Five, this is the number to this day, that number is still circulated that nearly 5 million small landowners, small scale subsistence farmers, small farmers lost or abandoned their farms. So when that happens, you have 5 million or more people then taking up and leaving the countryside. So people, where do you go? So many people from indigenous communities, they started migrating from the rural countryside into, you go to the United States or you go into the city. It was just a, basically a disaster. So NAFTA was horrendous for for uh, the working poor, for in the indigenous community, especially of whom uh, were already going to um, be the most affected um, by, by NAFTA. But in the meantime, of course, um, capitalists were able to, uh, you know, benefit. So we've had, um, you know, Carlos Slim was able to buy um, telecommunications and lots of people made lots of money. and the kind of disproportionate effects just made things, made the disparities just, it was just a bad thing yep. for Mexico. And it was fast. Yeah, that's neat. That's shock doctor neoliberalism for you, isn't it? Very fast and very effective at absolutely and utterly tearing everything apart. Um, 
Aye, wow. Uh, and obviously, it actually, when I was reading it, I got thinking of the the effects of um, sort of neoliberal policy on Argentina as well throughout the sort of late 90s, early 90s, the kind of moment, just how, how these countries have been absolutely and utterly pulled apart by, well, you know, I mean, obviously Reaganism and Thatcherism, the kind of the start of it, I suppose, prior to that Chile, but um, yeah, wow. Go on to a really interesting question on um, Argentina. You, you know, this period of NAFTA, um, it, it coincided with what um, Asavez Arce describes as, and I'm going to say it in Spanish, right? Argentinización of Mexican football. Um, can you expand on this for our listeners, please? I found this really fascinating. So, yeah. In fact, I think that it's another topic that I was like thinking about that. I actually, you know, there is some overlap with what he calls the Argentine Nación. Oh my God, that word is just so difficult to say, but I think it predates it because um, as you mentioned, Norman, I mean, Argentina, first of all, has the, you know, the, one of the, they have cycles of economic collapse, right? Right. So let's think about uh, the early 1980s, right? And in fact, 1980s is called like the lost decade of, of Argentina. Um, right. So then, uh, now check this out. And this is something that actually we had to edit out of our paper and Matt and I might write another paper about this. So the last decade, the, the economy like collapses basically in 1982. Um, what else happens in 1982 in Argentina? Islas Malvinas. I think you all might know a little bit about that. Uh, the Falkland Islands, right? So there's this moment of great Argentinian nationalism and, you know, fast forward to 1986, World Cup. Where's the World Cup? In Mexico, right? Argentina wins the World Cup. But what happens? What happens in that quarterfinal match? Who does Argentina get to play? La Mano de Dios. They have this magic moment against Britain, right? So Maradona that goal, that forever moment. And it's this like, for Latin Americans, I will never forget watching, watching at home in Los Angeles, my father, who like my father is half Argentinian, my, my pops is from Chile. And he's just like, yeah! and everybody in my body was just like, ah! it was like redemption, redemption for Argentina for, you know, against, England, oh, I that. Ah, and like my dad was like, you know, like showing me the newspaper, you know, like the Latin American and Spanish newspaper, La Opinion, like show me the pictures, like, oh, he was on his hand. My dad's a ham radio operator, and he was like calling all his family in Argentina. And so Mexico and Argentina have like these, like, they like cross pollinating these like moments in soccer and masculinity and redemption. And, and like they suffered these, you know, like moments together, right? Um, and if, and then so um, Arce. So I'm going to talk a little then about so that I think there was that that Argentinianization. But so uh, he notes that there was this time when Atlas starts hiring coaches, but also players from Argentina, and at the same time uh, there are the arrival, he says there's the arrival of Barras for the first time in 
Mexico. So barras are the kind of more hyper, uh, I would say like more aggressive version of the porra, right? So the less family-friendly example of the fan bases. And the barra, they come from South America. The barra supposedly originates in Argentina. And this is where I think also that we have this desmadre uh, fan, right? So why Argentina? Well, let's look at what has been happening in Argentina. So now we know they have had economic collapse in 1982. Well, what happened in 2001 in Argentina? Their economy collapsed in 2001 into 2002. I don't know if you remember those videos, people couldn't even get money from the bank, right? So I think there's this other kind of desmadre component that's happening in Argentina at the same time that the barras, that culture is being like now reflected in Mexico. And ironically, this is when, uh, I believe it is when um, Roger Magazine, he reports seeing when he returns to his trip to Mexico after his uh, book has ended. Like, I think it's, I think maybe I'm, remembering this incorrectly, that he reports seeing barra culture for the first time. So there's a kind of like overlapping thing that happens with Argentina and Mexico, Mexican culture. So there's this kind of cross-pollination with kind of desmadre that, um, like there's like a global desmadre, I think, happening between Latin America and Mexico. And I think it's because they've experienced this, again, this kind of like political economic shocks and, you know, uh, people talk about it in political economy. So Argentina's had their lost decade and Mexico had their lost decade too. Their lost decade being the 90s. So I think there's something there to be kind of uh, thought through more carefully. Spot on. I think it's something that the two of you should take up um, as soon as possible because it needs, <laughs> it needs to be done. Um, we've come to an end. I don't want to take up any more of your time, to be perfectly honest with you. This has been absolutely incredible um so as an outlaw the pay of you if people would like to engage with you and your work what is the best way for them to do that is it through social media is it through direct contact please let me know i'm on twitter but i don't i don't do it very often so i think really uh the best <laughs> heard that before many a time right exactly you know i probably would respond to twitter i should say that but uh for me probably the best way is to just contact via email uh, so that's matt.basso at utah.edu. Um, pretty, pretty easy. I am not on Twitter. <laughs> so that's you can contact point. me at sarita.gaitan at soch, soc.utah.edu. Um, and for more interesting stuff, you could uh, check out my book, Tequila, Distilling the Spirit of Mexico, which is... Uh, <laughs> We will leave links to all of that on the episode notes. And I guess one quick last question. Are you both working on anything together at the moment? Or is that something that is going to be happening further down the line, perhaps? Trying, I'm, I'm trying, to, trying to wrap up. To, a... to do something on air right now, you know what I mean? I'm trying to get you to make a commitment to each other that you'll work on something. Yes, no, no. <laughs> well, it's funny. I'm, I'm working on other projects, book projects. I need to wrap up um, more the historian uh, side of, of me, but it's been a joy working with Sarita and on more contemporary stuff. Uh, and that was rekindled by some of your questions, which were excellent, by the way. It was um, really fun to kind of think through what you all were asking us to consider 
and also to look at the more contemporary history of Eputo. Uh, so our story really is centered around these 2003, 2004 games, and then the World Cup games in 2014, 2018, and so on. But there's been um, a continuation of the use of this chant and of FIFA and uh, the regional associations trying to get their handle on it, right? Trying to figure out how to stop it. Uh, and that story, um, which we didn't have a chance of talking about right now, um, is incredible. Uh, and of course, many people will know it's transnational. So uh, Eputo, the chant is used a lot in American soccer stadiums. Uh, and that's been um, really interesting to follow as well as the effort by uh, a remarkable group of football activists, uh, queer activists to, to get it to stop. So we'll see. I don't know, Sarita, maybe that's part of the story that we should uh, follow on and move forward with.